I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers, and just plain cool people about music. Our guest on this week's episode of The Sound of Success is actor and writer Mike O'Malley, whose career has been as diverse as it is long. Mike hosted the early 1990s children's game show Guts on Nickelodeon before moving to Los Angeles to star in his own sitcom for NBC called The Mike O'Malley Show. He's also played Jimmy Hughes on Yes, Dear, a CBS series which ran from 2000 through 2006. He was nominated for an Emmy Award for his role as Burt Hummel on the Fox series Glee and was also seen recently in the TV adaptation of Snowpiercer. Mike has guest starred in a whole bunch of TV shows, including My Name is Earl, Raising Hope, Parenthood, and Parks and Recreation, and movies such as 28 Days, Deep Impact, Leatherheads, Eat, Pray, Love, and Sully. Mike was also the creator and an executive producer of the Star series Survivor's Remorse, which ran for four seasons between 2014 and 2017, and that show was shot in Atlanta. And at this point, Mike must know the Big Peach or A-Town like the back of his hand as he's back there currently shooting the second season of the wrestling drama Heels, a show that he is showrunner of and acts in playing the villain Charlie Gully. Mike is also a published playwright and co-wrote the book for the Broadway musical Escape to Margaritaville. Mike, welcome to The Sound of Success. Nick, it's great to talk to you. It's always great to talk to you. And uh, man, you've introduced me to so much great music. Uh, I just, I'm happy to be here with you. Well, thank you so much for doing the show. Now, you've had an eclectic career, clearly. A kid's show, comedy, drama, you write and act as well. How did you come to this business of entertainment? Well, I think that's uh, because I, um, you know, I, I got cut from the baseball team senior in high school. We had a very good baseball team in my high school. So I decided what can I do to get girls to have to pay attention, uh, because they're not watching me play sports anymore. And I thought, wow, there's an elevated platform where the lights go down and all the attention is put on you while you say a bunch of funny lines that's being in a play. And so I, uh. <laughs> I did a play at an all girls, uh, high school. Uh, we did Annie, get your gun. And I played sitting bull. This is a casting choice that would probably not be made, uh, <laughs> in this day and age, seeing that my <laughs> hair looked like Greg Brady back in those days. And, um, uh, but it was, it was so much fun. And, you know, there's something about acting and doing plays and being in a company on a film or in a television show where it's teamwork. And I found. I would, you know, I would prefer to be playing sports my whole life and being on a team, uh, you know, like a lot of young boys and girls, they just love sports and they think about their lives in the future as being, you know, college or professional athletes. And that became very clear kind of, uh, in my, in my, you know, junior and senior year of high school, that wasn't going to happen. And so that's really how I came to acting. I, uh, I then went to college at the university of New Hampshire and I auditioned for a play. And I think that once you start getting involved with people who are doing it, you kind of look around and you say, this ain't so bad. You can make a living doing this. And, um, you know, so that's where, that's where that dream started. What does a showrunner do for those who, who, uh, don't, don't understand when we hear people, uh, you know, you're a showrunner, what does that actually mean? Well, that's a great question. Really what it is, is you're overseeing the entire production, uh, creatively in terms of every different aspect of the show. So you're choosing uh, the crew that is where you're overseeing it. You're overseeing, you're oftentimes writing many of the scripts and then overseeing the rewriting of those scripts. You are uh, 
hiring the directors, you're hiring the writers, you're hiring the actors. Uh, and you, I think one of the biggest things about being a showrunner is that a television show has to cohere. Uh, it has to have a cohesive uh, tone and theme to what you're doing. And in order to make television on that scale, you need a lot of different directors coming in. You need a lot of different people. It's, it's very much, I don't want to say it's like a uh, assembly line, but there's a lot of different balls in the air. And so while you're editing something and you're overseeing editing something, somebody else is preparing the next episode. It's really trying to instill a cohesive theme and tone throughout an entire series and uh, hopefully lifting people up to do their best work. But the showrunner is really, I mean, I think it's, it's kind of a funny title. You never, you see it in press and people talking about it and that's mm -hmm. what you're called. Hey, you're the showrunner, but you never see that credit in, you know, the credits showrunner and uh, you know, but it's kind of, it's kind of goofy. Cause it's like, okay, what, what do we call the guy or the gal who's running the show? Why don't we just call him the showrunner? And which it's really like you are the, um, the, you're the conductor of a giant symphony. So there are people who play different instruments and you have to just make sure you're bringing in a little bit of a tuba here and a little bit of violin there and a little bit of cymbal here, and you're conducting the entire thing. Uh, so some showrunners are a little bit more um, focused on uh, just the writing. Others are focused on, you know, a lot of them direct. Uh, I am, I'm not a director on this show. It's really, uh, it's really my job to make sure that everybody is just making the same kind of show and, uh, and, and putting it all together and inspiring people. But, um, the fun thing about being a showrunner is making the show. Uh, the worst part is writing it. <laughs> You know, you, uh, you, you spent a little bit of time in Atlanta in these, uh, last what, five or six years now. You yeah. Must I mean, really Nick, it's, you know, I mean, gosh, we've known each other a long time, but I've been down here since 2014 working. So it's, it's been about eight years now. So you must know all the best restaurants in town or not. Do you get time? Well, I'm not a, you know, as my wife is the, um, the foodie, uh, and I am a guy who kind of just sticks with what works because I don't want to be disappointed, but my favorite restaurant in Atlanta is Soto Soto. And it's kind of our home away from home down here. Uh, this, this great people, there, great wait staff, great chef and, and great mater D Jimmy. And, uh, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, that's one of the things when you go away and you're away from home, finding a place where you feel like you're taken care of is, uh, it makes being away from home, not so lonely. Now you mentioned, uh, well, you told us what a showrunner does, which is pretty much, you know, oversee everything, uh, in, in the process of, uh, launching a, a series, how long, uh, how long, how much time does, does that take from when somebody comes to you and asks you if you're interested in working on a show and how, you know, what's the process of launching a new series? Right. That's a great question. One of the things that when you create a show, you have an idea for a show, you go sell that show, you pitch it around to different networks. They then give you a little bit of money to go write a script and you get notes on that script. And then they decide to pick that up. If you've created a show like that, that can be anywhere from, you know, it's usually in the television space. It's about a year process from the time you sell the thing to whether or not you know that you're making the thing. 
Uh, in the instance of this show, which was created by a guy from Georgia named Michael Waldron, he went on to become the showrunner of a show called Loki. And he had uh, written the pilot and overseen the, uh, um, the writing of uh, eight different episodes. They loved the show. They wanted to uh, change some things, but they wanted me to come in and show run that show. So I really had the wind of my sails for doing that show because a lot of the, you know, the toughest part about it was, which really is the toughest part about it is breaking stories. I think that the, you know, I think that making a television show, you get good actors, you get good directors, you get a good crew. If the stories are good, uh, you know, these people are professionals. They know how to, you know, it's like professional athletes. So they're going to go play a professional basketball game and they're not going to, you know, they're not going to be missing all the shots. They're going to, you know, they, they're going to have challenges, but they're professionals at it. And I think that for me making heels, it started it three years ago. We're now shooting the first episode, but this process was a three-year process slowed down quite a bit because of COVID. Right. Absolutely. And I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, I know that the first season of Heels was shot during the second year of the pandemic, right? So what, what kind of protocols did you have to put in place to be able to make the show? And how has that changed now as you, just as you mentioned, just started uh, shooting season two? Yeah. So, you know, May of 2020 was when the pandemic started, but we were actually shooting by September of 2020. Mm. And so the thing that I think that the television studios and the movie studios realized is that, you know, they have to get product out there. And especially if you're on a streaming service, because if they don't have the product and they don't have the new product content, whatever you want to call it shows, if they don't have that, then people will be like, well, why am I paying for this service? You know, for instance, if you watch, if, you know, the reason you watch Netflix is because you want to, and you keep it because the new season of Ozark is coming out. Well, if you find out that the new season of Ozark isn't coming out for two years, and that's the only reason you have Netflix, you're going to like drop it. And what streaming services are afraid of is that if you drop it, you never come back. You realize, you know what? I didn't need it. And mm. until word of mouth comes back to you and says, you've got to watch that show. So I think one of the things that happened was the studios and the streaming services were ready to just do whatever they could to keep stuff being made. And if people were willing to go to work, then they were willing to produce the shows. So here's what was hard about it is that there is so much nuance in communicating with people, right? One of the things I love about listening to you when I listen to you on the radio is the intimacy uh, of listening to you, how much care and thought you put into the things that you're really talking to listeners. It's not unlike when directors and writers are on set talking to fellow actors. It's a very intimate, quiet expression of feeling and emotion. That's hard to do when you have a mask on your face. It's very hard to do because you think about how, what's so, you know, not funny about this, but I mean, People don't recognize people when they have a mask on. <laughs> Why? Because there's so much. And, you know, you, you're, you're an English guy and, you know, I'm of Irish American heritage. And so much is said with just the, you know, the, the raise of an eyebrow. And of mm. course, that's not covered by a mask, but the turn of a lip, a, you know, a smile, um, you know, the way in which you communicate with your face is a way to indicate how to shade a performance or that you're joking, 
or that there's a little, you know, twinkle along with the, with the, with the smirk people get what that's out the window. And so it makes the joy of making a television show, which is like I said, not unlike sitting in the dugout and talking to your buddy or, or, you know, being on the bench and talking to your friend before you go in that your teammate that's out the window, stay away from everybody. You can't talk to everybody. You can't have a little aside to somebody. You can't come up and whisper in their ear, hey, try this on this next take. That's out the window. And so all of the joy, which is about being away from home, like, you know, I have three kids, great wife, great kids, you've met them all. The, the hard thing about being away from family is uh, not being around when they're having their moments in life and living their life, but it is, but you, your, your, your mood and how you feel about being away can be bolstered by great rewarding work and rewarding work happens. I think when you meet and you connect with uh, like-minded people and you know that you're spending your life, you know, fortifying relationships that can sustain you. And, um, you know, as, as you've sustained me as my friend in life and, and one of the, the, one of the things I love about hanging out with you is that when we're together and we talk, whenever we're talking, it's, it's, it's fun, but it's also deep. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's high quality conversation. It's, um, fortifying my life to spend time with people who think and feel as deeply as you do. That's what I want for my work every day. It's why I went into this job. It's it, because I want on a granular basis to really look at life, connect with people about life and think about how we can live this life better. That's what I try to do in my stories. And when it's, when you literally have a barrier between people, it's hard and it's not as rewarding and it's in, in, in fact, quite exhausting. Um, this is, I'm not saying anything that everybody in your audience doesn't know because they've lived it. But in particular, artists uh, who, who are working on making television shows and movies, they're not, <laughs> they're doing it to not be alone. They're doing it to collaborate. And uh, it's just, um, it took sort of some of the joy out of it because I'm like hey, anyone else. I'd rather be in my house not wearing a mask than out on a set wearing one. Any difference this time around? Because here we are like a year and a half later on the, on the second season. When we're outside, it's, we, we can shoot outside on location. You don't have to have your mask on as much. I think that because people are not as afraid of dying or feel like they are, uh, they feel as if they're vaccinated, everyone has to be vaccinated and double vaccinated and boosted to work on this particular show in zone a, which is around the actors and the shooting crew. Mm. Um, I think that there is a lightness to not feeling that if you got something, you were possibly bringing a death sentence home to your parents or your grandparents or someone's parents or grandparents. So yeah. I would say that there is a, um, I don't want to say there's a levity because I think people are still taking it seriously. We're tested three days a week. We have to wear KN95 masks when we're working. We The actors have to have shields on. You know, I will say that it's, but then you, you can, but then the end of the day, the end of the workday happens and people are just going to restaurants down here in Georgia. No one's wearing anything. Mm. So, yeah. um, 
you know, but it, you know, COVID has become such a, uh, a, a, a fraught a subject for, for so many reasons. And I, and I'm sad that it has, um, because I look, I understand I have kids, you have kids. It was terrible for kids, especially, uh, because, you know, they feel as if they've lost years of their lives that they can never get back. Whereas myself, if you were to take a picture of me two years ago, you know, I don't know if you'd see much of a difference. You, you, you do have a big beard right now though. And, and uh, that's, yeah, that's yeah. for your role. And we're going to talk about music any second, but let's just follow up on this just very quickly. So you told us about all the work you have to do that is involved in being a showrunner. And then you decided you were going to act in it as well. I mean, cause you're not doing enough, right? So, <laughs> well, so clearly there was a role in this that spoke to you. Tell us a little bit about Charlie Gully. The role of Charlie Gully, he owns a bait shop and uh, and a tackle shop, and a, and a, which is also a combination uh, place to buy firearms. Uh, and uh, I just thought it was a delicious role. He was the villain in the piece, or at mm. least the antagonist. And um, you know, my friend Pete Siegel, who was directing the show and is a fantastic director, and directed Tommy Boy and get smart and anger management and 50 first dates, this guy, longest yard, he's a fantastic director and a very successful one too. I trusted him. I couldn't be objective. He goes, what was happening is that we'd be at auditions and I would be reading opposite, uh, you know, some actors who are reading scenes with this, I would be reading Charlie Gully and he's just like, yeah, you should do this. And, uh, and I was like, yeah, listen, I'm a, I'm an actor. You tell me I'm going to be good in something. I'm going to do it. Whether, whether it ends up being true or not, I don't know. Is it more fun to play the bad guy? Oh, 100%. Let me tell you something. Acting is, it, it's a, I don't want to say it's a breeze, but once you get an acting job, once you get a job, it is the best job in the world. Now, granted, I'm not getting parts like, Daniel Day-Lewis, where now we need him to play Lincoln. Does he sound like Lincoln? Does he look <laughs> like Lincoln? I mean, I'm not like, you're not getting a lot of, I'm, I'm just there as a, you know, as a guy, uh, you know, standing by the light. Maybe uh, there's some comedic uh, asides that come my way, but it's just a blast. It is a, it is such a blast, you know, on Snowpiercer, there's probably more shots of the back of my head than there are of the front of my face because I'm always in scenes with Jennifer Connelly and David Diggs. Who do you want to look at? Me? Uh, Gollum over here? Gollum with the gray beard? Or uh, or Jennifer Connelly? Half the reason I did this show is so I could look at Jennifer Connelly. So, I mean, uh, you know, it, it was, uh, it's hilarious that, uh, but it's great to just be with a group of people and playing a part. And that's what I love about acting is you just, you're on a team. And let's all just, you know, throw the ball around a little bit and, uh, and see what we can come up with. Yeah. I'm a little worried that you told people I'm deep. So, but you know, I, I appreciate that. Whenever I don't you think that you can uh, <laughs> listen, I don't think that you can love music and champion the artists that you have in this country and beyond and not be deep because then you wouldn't be able to experience the range of lyrics that, you know, you've brought to my house and, uh, and, and the range of artistry. Sorry. Sorry, Nick. Man, you're too, uh, you're, you're, you're too, you're too kind. L it's, listen, I'm, I'm speaking the truth. I don't lie. You, you mentioned, obviously you've, you've got a, a lovely wife and three kids back in LA. Um, 
and acting is a world of feast or famine. And sometimes, I don't know, you tell me, it seems like it's waiting for a bus, nothing, nothing. And then three or four things line up simultaneously and you've got to juggle schedules. And sometimes you have to choose one thing over another. How do you manage to keep all the balls in the air? Not to mention the family responsibilities. Yeah, that's, um, well, I think that the feast of famine is a very real thing. The idea that you're never... A friend of mine, Vic Liv Levin, had the, a great writer, and he had the saying, he's like, show business, uh, you don't tell show business when it's over for you. Show business tells you you. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a great fear for many actors is that they never know where their, their job's going to be their last. I mean, it's one of the reasons I started writing because I was like, well, you know, at a certain point, people just get sick of your face. I mean, one of the reasons I grew the beard is because I got to do something different. I got to, you know, I mean, clearly right now I look like somebody stormed the Capitol. So, I mean, this is not somebody who was, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, this, it's not a guy who, uh, you know, is like the friendly guy on yes, dear. This is a guy that, you know, most of America wants to run out of America, uh, for very good reasons, by the way. And so I think that the feast or famine aspect of it is what always is making you hustle. I think that to any of your listeners who are actors out there, you should start writing and writing drama. I like to say is, is not the same as writing fiction. Uh, if you can get in an argument with somebody, you can write drama. If so, if you've ever been in an argument with a friend or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or uh, a parent, uh, just write that argument down. Presto, you are now a dramatic writer and it's <laughs> something that is able to you know, if you do that, you're able to channel some of the energy of waiting to be chosen by someone. And uh, I think being on the other side of acting, excuse me, and, and being on the other side of acting and seeing what, how many people have to sign off on anyone before you get an acting role, it's really kind of terrifying. And it's almost, well, it, it's almost as miraculous as uh, the conception of a human being birth. The fact that uh, that happens and the fact that anyone gets a part is staggering to me <laughs> uh, because of the amount of people fighting for a part and because of the people who have to be in agreement. Let's talk about music. You and I first met actually in the basement of a radio station that I used to, used to work at. That's my first memory of you, Mike. Um, what's, what's your first musical memory? You know, my brother and I, uh, had an uncle, uh, Tom, my father was the oldest of seven and, uh, Tom was his younger brother. He was about 15 years uh, younger than my dad. And, uh, so when my brother and I were Oh man, five or five or six. Uh, my uncle Tom was 18, 19, and I was born in 66. And our uncle Tom had all the Beatles records. And we knew, my brother and I, Liam, knew all the words to every Beatles song by the time I was six. We listened to the Beatles all the time. We loved the Beatles. We had a old stereo uh you know, record player that looked like a, uh, almost looked like a, you know, a piece of furniture, like a, put, you know, a buffet or a credenza that had one of the, just a big old record player that used to go in the living room. And 
we knew every single uh, Beatles. And, and, you know, my brother was, so my brother was a year and a half older than me, but one year ahead in school and we were very close. And he just, uh, he got into the Beatles first and I was his little brother and I just loved the Beatles because he loved the Beatles. And uh, so my first memory is just loving the Beatles. What was the first music you bought with your own money? Ah, that's a great question. I remember this. I actually think that it was 19, it was either 1976 or 1977. And I went down to Nutting's record store. There was also, it was Nutting's music store and they had 45s. So you'd have to actually check the year on this. But I think the first 45s I ever bought were Peg by Steely Dan and uh, Come Sail Away by Styx. I bought them both at the same time. And then the first album I bought was Armed Forces by Elvis Costello. So, you know, a lot of my music was very, I was not a musician. My brother's a guitarist and a, and a great songwriter. Um, but I was definitely just more focused on uh, sports, basketball, baseball. And um, that's what I did with my free time. But I loved music. My parents, uh, you know, played music. My, my father was in a barbershop uh, chorus and also a barbershop quartet. He mm. sang. Um, so it was always music in our house. He, you know, they would play, um, Broadway musicals and Gilbert and Sullivan, but also, you know, barbershop music. And then they, they loved music, but my brother had amazing musical taste and he started with the Beatles and then went up. And then by the time we were in, uh, he was in gosh, eighth or ninth grade, London Colin, and you know, he was, he was in a, uh, he was in a punk rock band. And so, you know, I grew up in New Hampshire, uh, about 40 miles north of Boston. So then he was in a hardcore punk band. And so his band opened for the Ramones when we were in college. Wow. And, and so all of that indie rock music that was uh, happening in, in, in that time in Boston. So very eclectic. So I, I just, I kind of just, uh, I, my brother, what he was into, I was into I was just looking up Steely Dan and uh, Peg was on uh, Asia, which came out in 77. Um, and I think that the, uh, the, the, uh, the Elvis Costello, um, first Elvis Costello album came out around about the same time. Very different records though. So you're already eclectic yeah. in your musical taste there. Well, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, you, I, I think one of the things that's been lost and maybe, you know, I don't want to say lost in a bad way is that, you know, if you want to listen to music, you had to listen to it on the radio stations and you, we were close enough to Boston. So we had good radio stations, but college radio wasn't. So you cert certainly couldn't get any college radio up in New Hampshire from Boston at mm. that point. And so, you know, you, uh, you know, you listened to what was on the radio. Um, you know, I remember one of my first favorite songs was, uh, <laughs> was, was, uh, you know, band on the run was one of my first favorite songs. What was that? 74, 75. And then, Wings. yeah. And 75, then um, I think, yeah. Yeah. And there's a, one of the first favorite songs I can remember as being a little kid was, and when I die by, was it three dog night? And I was just like, and, but I just remember. I, and so, you know, even my parents were like, okay, this is, you know, this is a six-year-old kid, seven-year-old kid. Its favorite song is When I Die. When I die, when I'm gone, <laughs> there'll be one child born in this world. Carry on, carry on. I mean, it's just, like, I remember, I remember like, wow, this song is so deep. And 
And when I die, I'm like, I, I, mean, I, I don't know. You have to look at what that song came up, but I just yeah. remember being little, little, little. Well, Band on the Run was 73. I was a couple of years off on that. Um, you were mentioning your, your brother playing in a band and seeing your brother playing live. What was the first concert you went to w without parental wow. supervision? Um, that's a good question. I mean, it might have been James Taylor, probably. Like, I was not a big going to concert guy. You know, they were expensive. You'd have to go down to Worcester, Massachusetts or Boston. Mm. Probably James Taylor when I was in um, college. Yeah, should have gone to more. Made up for it later. I, I interviewed James Taylor, um, I don't know, five or six years ago for that uh, Guitar Center Sessions TV show I, I used to host. And uh, what a what an incredible musician, but what a lovely man. Talk about deep. Yeah. Yeah, and he's... Um, what I'm amazed with James Taylor is just how crystal clear his voice still sounds. I was very lucky uh, when I was working for the Nickelodeon. The guy who was doing the Nickelodeon live tour was also the uh, stage manager at the Paramount Theater, which is in Madison Square Garden. And when I say that I got two seats front and center to see James Taylor, this guy got them for me. And oh my God, it's just his. I've, you know, listen, I mean, that's the thing. I, I talk about, you know, you and, and this country and eclectic music and, and why people know Nick Carcourt, you know, from your eclectic taste and what you've brought to people. You know, look at that. James Taylor, Steely Dan, the Ramones, London Calling, you know, uh, the Clash, uh, uh, Sticks, Three Dog Night, the Beatles. I mean, I just, I love music. Do you, do you dance? And, and if you do, what, what do you listen to when you want to dance? I don't. Listen, I no longer dance, but when I was in college, I certainly knew that if you would like to get the attention of the girls who are on the dance floor, um, you, that's where you should be. I did as an actor to get out of the university of New Hampshire, have to take literally theater dance class. Mm -hmm. I will still attest to the fact that tap dancing is the most difficult thing I have ever attempted. And and I'm willing to bet any anyone has ever attempted. If if you ever see a tap dancer, stop and really appreciate it because it's so hard to do. Like it's ridiculously hard to do. It's the reason why a lot of people don't do it because it's really really hard. To do. <laughs> but um, I mean it. I, I mean tap, tap dancing is very cool, but it's really hard to do. And uh, and so you know, but but you know, dancing, uh, you know. I don't dance anymore because I look ridiculous, but I loved, I loved dancing when I was in college and, and, uh, you know, going to, going to bars and hanging on. It was fun. What do you listen to if you're feeling sad? Well, uh, I try actually not to that. There was a day when I would do that, but that would just take me lower. Um, I will say that I love a contemplative music. Um, I love explosions in the sky. This will destroy you. Cigaros, which I don't think, I think you introduced me to them. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty lucky guy in the sense that I don't have a lot to be sad about. I think in my, in my 20s going through 
whatever relationship or searching phase that, you know, or, you know, just that, that period of your life between 21 to 27, which I think is one of the hardest periods of people's lives, you know, sort of leave the, uh, the bosom of friends. You got to make, you know, your own money. You know, some of your friends are getting more successful while you're struggling and, mm. and, and people are kind of made playing musical chairs and looking around. And if you want to be in a relationship, uh, you know, or is this person somebody I want to settle down with? I don't necessarily think that's a, that's what's happening now as much given what I've seen of my daughter and her friends. But I think that during that period, um, of my life, I was probably, I don't know. I was listening to some version of, I was too old by the time emo really became popular, but there was probably a version of, of emo that I was listening to. Blue Nile. I don't know. You know what I mean? That's not really emo, but you know, um, love the Blue Nile. Yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Well, you, you did just say you were listening to a three dog night song when you were a kid that was talking about death. So yes, but <laughs> <laughs> well, I got, listen, man, I have no problem with anybody gets deep. I love it. I'll go deep in two seconds. I love it. I love people. I think life is so incredibly amazing yet ridiculous. Like this entire <laughs> thing, like it's so ridiculous. Like think about this, Nick, at one point we all die. Like we just lights out. It's all over. How ridiculous is that when you really think about it? Like I was saying this to somebody the other day, I was working so hard on this script. And I said, if I die doing this show, tell everybody it wasn't worth it. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's it. I mean, this whole thing. Yeah. It's, all, you, it's, all, it's By the way, and then you die. Yeah. It's, it's all ludicrous. Um, might as well try and figure out how to, you know, at least not be too depressed while we go through however many years of this we get. Um, do you have a favorite music video? And if if so, why? Uh, you know what I loved? I loved the, the Peter Gabriel Sledgehammer video. I just loved it. Um, oh, with all the animation and the claymation. Yeah, yeah, I just loved it. Yeah. And then Big Time came out. I just, I loved those videos when they came out. I thought that they were very original. I thought that he had a really cool voice and I thought it was amazing. That record. So was so amazing. It was kind of amazing that a guy who's, he had a great voice, but it was very unique. And I just, I thought it was a trip that he had that cool of a video because look, he's not, you know, I, I, I'm not picking on Peter Gabriel, but it's like, he's not like some, like, uh, I've, you know, in the band, aha, or whatever, Duran Duran, you know what I mean? He, even, you know, Sting with his blonde hair, you know, it, it was a lot like he was, uh, you know, a, 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 a teeny bopper or anything like that. He was just, this, he was like, what was he? What was Peter Gabriel when he made that album? Like 40? I don't know. That, that, that album was from 86, 87, 86? something like that. <clears throat> um. But, but you know, the, the, the girls did like Peter Gabriel. There's, there's, there's no doubt about that. He, he did just fine with, with the ladies. Yeah. yeah. But by the way, hats off to Peter Gabriel. I'm just saying it, he wasn't like Simon LeBon. Right. Like he, back he, in those days, think about that. Like at the height of MTV, you'd have bands that became popular 
just because they looked good. Well, that was the whole thing, wasn't it? I mean, that was like the second British invasion was MTV because yeah. all those bands had videos and there was no video production in America at that time for, for, for music. So right. all those guys like Duran Duran and Spandau Ballet and, uh, you know, all, all those uh, early 80s bands took off. But the thing about Peter Gabriel that you mentioned uh, that was amazing is that it wasn't just the music. He saw a much bigger picture creatively and what he could do with a song. And then those videos that he made were unlike anything that anybody else had made. Cause as we just sort of alluded to, it's Duran Duran. It's, you know, guys on boats with models and, and Gabriel's expression of, uh, uh, you know, through his video was a little bit different. Yeah. Well, listen, I wanted to be with the guys on the boats with the model. I'm not saying I didn't, you know, but again, then you'd watch their songs. You're like, why do those guys get to be on the boat with the models? Yeah. <laughs> do you have a recent musical discovery, uh, and it doesn't have to be a new band. It can be somebody that's been around a while that you've just discovered, but a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with our listeners. I love the war on drugs. I just think they're so good. I listen to them over and over. Um, I've been blown away from them. Um, there's also, you know, I mean, what's so great about the music services is that they, Yes, they're tracking you and they probably have planted the chip in your head, but uh, you can really, um, you get fed different music that you wouldn't be expecting to, you know, hear, or maybe you wouldn't even have an opportunity to hear if you did not, uh, you know, open yourself up to being exposed to new music. But I love the war on drugs. Uh, um, I've really been listening to them. I don't know if I'm saying this guy's name correctly, but his, I think his name is, it's M-O-N-S-U-N-E, uh, Monsoon. Okay. He's just a guy making his own music. And I think there's a song called Jade, which I think is just so good. I love that. Um, I think I mentioned before that, uh, you know, I love Spoon's new record, but they've been around for a while. I love them. Um, uh, I've been listening to some uh, Peter Sandberg, who is a uh, instrumentalist. Uh, if I can, you know, hopefully I'm, I'm I'm characterizing him, but he is music that I listen to that is a little bit more, uh, I guess, atmospheric. Um, you know, a lot of times when I'm writing, uh, I don't want to be distracted with lyrics. I love mm. lyrics, um, but. I don't want to necessarily. You don't want other words in your head when you're trying to write. Yeah, your own. yeah, when I'm when I'm when I'm trying to write them. But um, and you know, there's somebody I think that you play on Casey at KCSM. I think her name is Jensen McRae. Oh yeah, she's fantastic. Um, she's yeah. a local California girl. LA girl. She's terrific, and I think her voice is just extraordinary. And I'm not going to be surprised if she breaks out big. Because I think she has a very, very Jetson McRae. I mean, you should really listen to her. She's she's great. Do you have a, a band or an artist that you love, but you feel they never got the big break they deserved? Well, it's hard to say that my favorite band, Buffalo Tom, has not gotten breaks because a lot of people know who they are. However, mm. I wish that Buffalo Tom was as well known as you two, because I feel as if a Bill Janovitz. Tom McGinnis and Chris Coburn are the sound that they make with just three instruments is so massive. And I think that they're 
lyrics and their songwriting and their song structures are so vast and all consuming and wide ranging and they're just rock and rollers. And uh, I wish that Buffalo Tom was more well-known and had more songs that when you tried to put them in a TV show, it cost you $90,000 so that they could continue to make music and do nothing but make music because I think that they've improved as musicians right now. And I think that's the sad thing for a lot of um, how the money has gone away in streaming services and not paying people is that, you know, people don't understand. I remember saying this when Napster first came out and people like, I can have all this music and I just get it for free. And I was like, look, man, that, that would be like if Stephen King, if you could just go, it's like not the same thing as like if you buy a Stephen King book in a used bookstore, okay, the guy at the used bookstore, but there's not 200,000 copies of Stephen King. You know, the, the used bookstore guy doesn't have a printing service that he prints books for free and just then sells them for $5 and Stephen King doesn't get any of that money. Mm. I was early on on this. I was like, no, the guys, this is bad. It's really like you want, I want Bill Janovitz to have six months to work on an unbelievable album where he really thinks about everything and produces this unbelievable piece, piece of work. I want the guys in, you know, I mean, look when you see your favorite bands and they come out with great music it's because they're, they're spending time on it. I know that some people argue against that, you know, but, but for me, I think that musical artists give so much back to us. And if, if you, if you have ones that are great and really have something to say and music that moves you, you want them doing nothing other than making music. That's their role in society, in culture is to do those things for you so you can be lifted up emotionally, you know, orally. You mentioned Buffalo Tom, and I just do want everybody to know that if you want to explore Buffalo's Tom music, of course, you can go check it out wherever you check out music, if you've got a streaming service or otherwise, but you can also buy their, their uh, music and merch on Bandcamp. And that's the place I like to send people to, because if you actually buy the music, then clearly those are actual dollars going into people's pockets rather than, you know, quarter cents for every couple of hundred streams or whatever it is. But your, your point about discovery for streaming is, is very well taken because we now have the, uh, the opportunity to listen to pretty much anything that's ever been recorded. I mean, not everything, but a lot, a lot of stuff. And if you're a teenager today, you've got access to like 70 years worth of rock and roll, which is unbelievable. But as we said, the other side of that, of course, is that uh, artists don't really get paid from uh, from that. So I always like to send people to Bandcamp um, personally. Um, I think we've got two questions left, Mike. Um, Let me give you one more, Nick. Just go to your streaming service and check out this band, Death Ships. All right, literally Death Ships. The music does not sound like it's two words, Death Ships. And I want, I'm going to, I'm going to give you, I'm going to just, who's ever listening to this, go listen to, if you like the rock and roll, two songs, Fan Sleeper, which is on circumstantial, circumstantial chemistry. And go listen to a song called Little Mystery, which is on Seeds of Devastation. Bill Janovitz, actually the lead singer of Buffalo Tom, introduced me to this band 
And I have played both of these records over and over. This band should be more widely known and their songs are just beautiful. I'm looking at them right now and I will, I will definitely listen when we get off the air because uh, when we get off this, because I, I don't know them. So thanks for that. Um, do you have a guilty pleasure? I, I'm talking musically. Do you have a band or an artist that is a, a guilty pleasure? Somebody that, you know, perhaps no, you know, nobody really knows that you like and you're going to tell oh, us. That's a great question. It's funny. This is just the New Hampshire guy in me. I listen to Boston. The band Boston. Okay. More than a feeling. Don't yeah. look back. You know? All right. I'm telling you, man, it's it's bombastic. There's spaceships on the cover. I'm not going to say it's Kiss, okay? But there's something about me growing up in New Hampshire. You hear these songs. You can't shake them. And I got to tell you, I've always enjoyed them. I've always enjoyed Boston. There's something about when I hear them puts me back in a time and space that, um, you know, I'm not saying I look back on it with rose colored glasses, but I'm just like, yeah, man, this is just Boston. Like who says like, oh, my favorite band is Boston. You know what I mean? Because even when we were like growing up, we're like, it's not really a band, you know, they were put together just to make the records and they don't really tour around. It's not like a bunch of buddies got together and made the band. Plus they're named after the city that they're from. <laughs> Which is ridiculous. Yeah, but, but they had a spaceship right now, on the album cover. Let me just tell you, at the end of this interview, click on a little bit, click on Don't Look Back by Boston. It's a little guilty pleasure. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that one with us. Uh, we're just about done here. I, I always like to wrap up with this same question, which is, how are you feeling right now? I'm feeling great because I got to spend some time talking to my friend, Nick, and it is reminding me that this is why we need to get together with people because talking and connecting and laughing, uh, you don't, you don't laugh when you're alone. You don't laugh when you're sitting there watching. I mean, maybe people laugh and they're watching something, but mm -hmm. actually being together is the best thing. And, um, and so how I'm feeling right now is I'm glad that you told me to do this. It's at the end of a long day in Atlanta, but, uh, it's making me feel a little less sad that I'm, uh, away from home. I'm, I'm not with my family and, and not with friends. So yes, I'm going to go put, put on, I don't know. What am I going to go play? I'm going to go play Dan Fogelberg's old Lang, same old Lang Syne. Okay. <laughs> Uh, another song that I was like, before I even realized, like that song is about like two people who are 40 running each other into each other at the grocery store. And I was like 14 when I heard that. I was like, oh my God, this song is so sad. I was like 14. And the snow turned into <laughs> rain. Go listen to that song. Everybody, go listen to that song after this interview. And if I don't you're know alone, about make sure there's not a knife right at your neck or near your wrist. Okay. It's funny. You mentioned the Blue Nile a little bit earlier on, and I, it's one of my favorite bands and uh, the, that first album in particular. But uh, I, I do remember somebody describing it to me once as, you know, music to get into a tepid bath to and just open your wrist. <laughs> I mean, it's so true. It's so true. But you know what? I don't know if it was like, it might've been Nick Hornby who wrote in, uh, 
high fidelity. This is like the thing that has ruined everybody is love songs. Love songs are what's ruined everybody because people, these songs have made people think that love is possible and that it won't hurt you. And hilarious. Hey, it's, listen, I want to thank you, first of all, because you are, you are a mate and uh, we don't get to see each other that often because of work and, uh, you know, the fact that you've been Atlanta, in Atlanta for like eight years. Exactly. Um, but um, I, I want to thank you because I know that it's midnight in Atlanta as we're wrapping this conversation and you've been on set all day acting today and you took the time to come and do this for me. So uh, let me ask you one more question. The, the new season, you're just starting to shoot it. Uh, the show is Heels. It's on the Stars Network. When do you expect the uh, second season to go, to go up? I think the second season will be airing uh, sometime in uh, early 2023. Hmm. And, uh, it seems like a long ways away, uh, but it will be here before we know it, especially for those of us over the age of 50, it'll be here right around the corner. So, it's to, uh, it's tomorrow, exactly. It's tomorrow, but Nick, <laughs> it's always great to talk to you and I'll see you when I get back in town. Uh, we'll have a proper dinner, but, uh, Michael Malley. Always, always great to talk to you. Michael Malley has been our guest on the sound of success. Thank you, mate. Thanks for listening. The Sound of Success is produced by Elizabeth Thompson with myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and at sparknetwork.com. <laughs>